Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I look at a small slice of American writing using the Library of America as my source material. Basically, I'm reading through the Library of America and giving you my comments on each hundred pages of it that I, I read. So currently, I'm looking at a series on turn of the century black writers, particularly I'm going to be looking at three, um, James Johnson, uh, Charles Chestnut, and W.E.P. Du Bois. And right now I, I'm looking at W.E.P. Du Bois. So if you just joined us, you, you might want to go back and listen to uh, the previous episodes uh, where I looked a little bit of Du Bois and uh, Charles Chestnut. And then I had a series about a year ago where I looked at Harlem Renaissance writers. So some of those themes might be relevant. Although most of these, the writers I'm looking at now wrote before the Harlem Renaissance mostly, although uh, although Du Bois wrote through it, but um, his career sort of started before the Har Harlem Renaissance. So he's of like the earlier generation of, of black writers. So Du Bois is of course a very important historical figure and a very inter interesting writer. He wrote in many different fields, mostly nonfiction. He, he wrote uh, several books of essays. He wrote history. He wrote even some fiction from time to time. He's most well known for his history writing and his essays and his political writings, most of which appeared in The Crisis and in other um, African-American journals at the time. And then politically, he was really in the, I don't want to say fully anti-Booker T. Washington faction, but he was critical, highly critical of Booker T. Washington's leadership, and he kind of presented a different strategy from Booker T. Washington's, which was much more based on internal uplift and, edu and vocational education and working with the white South. So Du Bois is challenging white supremacy much more directly than, than Booker T. Washington was. Um, now, today I'm going to start looking at what really I, I think is his best work. And not only is it his best work, I think it's one of the best works of prose in the entire American tradition. Um, and that is The Souls of Black Folk. And I'm going to spend a couple episodes on it, so I'm just going to sort of introduce the text and look at some of the early chapters. So this is a set of essentially 14 essays. I think some of them were published before, and some were written just for Souls of Black Folk, and some kind of sealed the text together. What it is, is it's like a snapshot of of African-American life, particularly in the South, but in, in a way it's, it's looking at it across the nation as well, at this moment of time, which the early 20th century. The book itself was published in 1903, so we have a couple things going on in America at this time. Of course, it's the progressive era, and there's a lot of talk about uplift and, and progress for, for many different groups in the United States. And here's where sort of Booker T. Washington came into the discussion of, of uplift, right? And we see this really criticized by the Harlem Renaissance writers, but it's something Du Bois, I think, takes seriously. So there's this whole theme of, of uplift in education and how to, to rise up as a, as a race and as a, as a nation. Of course, as we know, in the progressive era, the black South was largely left behind 
by the rise of Jim Crow, which happened at the same time, right? In fact, there's some parallel themes, like, for instance, literacy requirements for voting, which was one of the ways disfranchisement was achieved in the South, was also used to control immigration around the same time. And so the progressives feel there was a need for like government policy to regulate disorder caused by industrialism, immigration, and other elements of social change. And some of it, you know, ended up being quite racist and really focused on order and eugenics even. So Du Bois is challenging these trends, these more racist trends of the progressive era while still holding on to a belief in, in uplift in progress. So the book achieves a bit of this. It's also achieving, I think, it's, it's a very broad look at black America. It has chapters on the poor farmers, for instance. It has chapters on the educated folks. It has chapters on particular black leaders. Um, Alexander Crummel is the one he looks at, and then he has a chapter on Booker T. Washington. And he has chapters that are autobiographical, so he's got some reflection on his own life and his own experiences, particularly in one essay where he talks about the death of his son and what that meant to him personally and, and his feelings about race and and a bit of bittersweetness about uh, what his son will not have to experience because he will not be raised in, in America as a black man. What else do we have? We, there's chapters here on black culture and the contributions black people made to American culture. There are several chapters of history, particularly history of Reconstruction and the and kind of that freedom generation, that generation that came out of slavery and really started to remake the South. Now, Du Bois is going to explore this in much more depth in The Souls of Black Folk, which the Library of America did not include in their collection of Du Bois' writing. I, I'm thinking maybe they couldn't have fitted it. I, I recommended, I was thinking maybe they should have taken out suppression of the slave trade and put in soul, um, Black Reconstruction in America. But actually, when I took a look at my copy of Black Reconstruction in America, you know, that would have been over half of this already lengthy volume if they were to include that. So maybe space really more than anything else. It probably should be released as a separate volume in the Library of America series, I would think, with maybe a few other Du Bois's writings. But anyways, the, some of the chapters here that are historical are really previewing what he's going to argue in Black Reconstruction in America about the Freedmen's Bureau, about the agency of freedmen and women in remaking the South. There's even one essentially story of fiction here called Of the Coming of John. So it's a, it's a diverse display of his talents, and it's all beautifully written. It's, it's really wonderful. I, I can't recommend this book enough as just, a, just, just if nothing else, not, not only as a great window into black politics of the time and the challenges African-Americans were facing at the turn of the century with the rise of Jim Crow, also just as beautiful writing. I mean, it, it stands on it. It really, in my view, stands as one of the greatest works of, of American writing. Now, the other thing Du Bois does in this work is, and this is kind of overarching the whole thing, and he talks about it in his introduction, which he calls the forethought, which is this concept of the veil you know, or the, con the concept of double consciousness. And these are, these are kind of related terms. They're not the same thing technically, but they really are directly related. And all this really means is that black people see themselves as themselves, I guess, as, a, as, a, as black people and as Americans and as individuals. But they also are always seeing themselves as white America sees them as kind of outside the American experience. So they, they feel both of America and outside of it. And this is the result of, of racism. 
right and this is where double consciousness comes from this kind of divided nature and this divided consciousness of oneself again both he talks about it in one chapter as being a problem right how he white people would talk to him and and talk to him as if you know what's essentially saying what's it like to be a problem although they would coach it in different in different ways and so he's often talking about liberation as being above the veil right so he for instance when he sets up to write this book he says i'm going to go inside the veil and and look at the world from within inside the veil basically saying i'm going to look at the black experience from within it but at various times he also talks about coming above the veil veil like one time he talks about how he's able to participate in the western literary tradition and he's got this beautiful phrase about how he walks hand in hand in shakespeare and all that but he he says he he's above the veil at that moment and he talks about his son when his son died and how he's above the veil now and now that he's not a black american anymore and how he could exist beyond the veil so if liberation is breaking free of the veil and allowing people to essentially live as fully american and fully themselves without having this divided identity and divided consciousness so that's an important concept that runs through the entire book although it's never addressed directly it's just something he he talks about it's kind of in the backdrop of of his whole theory um, and how he presents his his evidence so yes, it's a very disparate book. It talks a lot, a lot about different things. He doesn't give you a clear argument, I don't think, but where he's coming from is, you know, is fairly obvious when you read it all together. And I, I think that's what makes it a really wonderful book is because it really, every chapter is fresh. It's not like, a, unlike a lot of kind of academic nonfiction where it gets kind of clunky and it gets, like it's just presenting evidence and there's a thesis and then it just kind of is, is proved over a series of pages. In this, he's dancing around a lot of different arguments, but it all is centered on this concept of, of divided consciousness, double consciousness, and, and the means to liberate oneself or to liberate a people from, from that experience. And the way the book is divided is just broken up into 14 chapters, each really talking about a, a distinct issue. They're all fairly short, like the entire book is only about 200 pages, so each chapter is between 10 and 20 pages. There's actually only a couple that are, are, are a little bit longer. And then each chapter begins with a bit of poetry, and then usually the poetry... I don't know all these poets, actually. Um, I didn't look up all of them, but often they're white uh, Anglo-American poets. And then he follows this with music, and this music comes from the so-called sorrow songs. And so Du Bois renames the spiritual sorrow songs, right, which is actually a better name for them. Um, I've heard some people want to say they want to call the plantation songs, which I also think is a good name for them. Spiritualists, spirituals. Yeah, a lot of these songs have have religious themes but they're not strictly like hymns i mean they get kind of presented as as black hymns sort of but actually these du bois wants to remind us that these were songs that were sung in work and in response to great trauma and, and great sorrow and that's why i call them sorrow songs but you know for me plantation songs is also a perfectly um accurate way to describe them so i also don't like this this term spiritual um, so each chapter begins with kind of some actual just some notes and you can if you can read music you can kind of guess what they are I, I have another copy of this that actually has the footnotes that explains where where these notes come from and then they all come from some of these songs were well known 
to me, some I had to look up, some I couldn't even find like YouTube recordings of, so some of them are more obscure. Okay, so the first chapter is called Of Our Spiritual Strivings, and the music at the top of this chapter is Nobody Knows the, the Trouble I've Seen. And he starts out with this concept that white people saw black America as a problem that had to be solved, something that had to be addressed, and how this gets interpreted by um, black people as, is a, it's, it's a bit odd. So they ask, like, what's it like to be a problem without actually asking them, what is it you strive for? What is it you want? What, what does freedom mean to you? You know, the kind of that question you get in grade school. That's never really asked directly. It's assumed uh, that white people know best for them. And yeah, they'll be charitable. And they'll, some anyways, not, not the white Southern racists, but some in the North, perhaps some Republicans might have said, you know, well, you know, we'll set up schools. We'll do these things for you. And and this is kind of looking at it without looking at the problem without actually addressing what the problem is, because it's never really asked of 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 the black south. And here's where he sort of gets to the closest he gets to a formal definition, I think, of double consciousness. And he says, quote, after the Egyptian and the Indian, the Greek and the Roman, the Teuton and the Mongolian, the Negro is a sort of seventh son born with a veil and gifted with second sight in this American world, a world which yields him no true self-consciousness, but only lets him see himself through the revelation of the other world. It is a peculiar sensation, this double consciousness, this sense of always looking at oneself through the eyes of another, of measuring one's soul by the tape of a world that looks on in amused contempt and pity. One ever feels his two-ness, an American and Negro, two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, two warring ideals in one dark body, whose dogged strength alone keeps him from being torn asunder. The history of the American Negro is a history of this strife, this longing to attain self-conscious manhood, to merge his double self into a better and truer self. In this merging, he wishes neither the older selves to be lost. He would not Africanize America, for America has too much to teach the world in Africa. And he would not bleach his Negro's soul in a flood of white Americanism, for he knows that Negro blood has a message for the world. He simply wishes to make it possible to be a man and both, to be for a man to be both Negro and an American without being cursed and spit upon by his fellows, without having the doors of opportunity close roughly in his face. So he talks about you know, what's an example of a goal of white America that doesn't quite achieve the spiritual strivings he's trying to des describe and define here? And one example he gives is something like the 15th Amendment, right? The Something that the Republican Party was very proud of, something that there was a lot of political will to enforce. This is the amendment that, of course, gave uh, the right to vote to black men in the Reconstruction era and, and actually did help contribute to the formation of of that that aborted revolution we know as reconstruction yet he still presents it here as something that's not really enough it's not quite what they were after quote the ballot which before he had looked upon as a visible sign of freedom he now regarded as a chief means of gaining and perfecting the liberty with which the war had partially endowed him and why not had not the votes made war and emancipate made had not votes and war emancipated millions? Had not votes enfranchised the freedmen? Was anything impossible to a power that had done all this? A million black men started, started with renewed zeal to vote themselves into the kingdom. So the decade flew and the revolution of 1876 came and left 
the half-free surf weary, wondering, but still inspired. Slowly and steadily in the following years, a new vision began gradually to replace the dream of political power, a powerful movement, the rise of another ideal to guide the unguided, another pillar by fire at night after the clouded day. It was the ideal of book learning and education. So that's, then he goes on to talk about the goal of education. But there seem to be always, like, these always seem to be half measured, never quite achieving this full goal of becoming men. And I'm using that, it's, I know it's a gender term, but Du Bois talks about it this way. You know, really rising above the veil, right? And, and getting beyond this, this double consciousness. Because no matter what was achieved in Reconstruction and with charity and with opportunities to uplift the South or whatever, it always was based on a conceit that black people would have to concede to be servants, right? And this, for instance, one thing it did is it limited them to higher education. This is part of... Du Bois's critique of Booker T. Washington so much is that he kind of went halfway where white people wanted blacks to stay, you know, to be content with with being serfs, being servants. So then he goes over in some detail about the needs of of the black South. So what physically? It's interesting because he talks calls this chapter spiritual strivings, but then he actually starts to make a really concrete you know, material claims. And I, and I think that, that we might see a little bit of his, almost his Marxist perspective here in the sense that there's a concreteness to, there's a material foundation to a spiritual liberation. So it kind of sums it up as work, culture, and, and liberty, right? And by work, he's throwing in education and training, a diversity of training and education, not just of one type. That's something that's this stuff. As for culture, as he describes throughout the book, that this is something that black people have already contributed to America, but he wants it acknowledged and celebrated and cultivated. He doesn't want it to be something just, just kind of leftovers of slavery, right? Which is how I think he feared a lot of whites looked upon black culture as something that was just kind of left behind, a remnant of, of slavery, like the, the spirituals. And then liberty, which is, of course, a little bit harder to define, but that's really this kind of coming above the veil, um, this liberation from, from double consciousness. So that's the, that's the first chapter. Now, if you read this, you know, it's, it's a bit of a struggle because he, he talks around things. He, he doesn't, like if you read Booker T. Washington, he's much more concrete and, and clear on what he's after. And Du Bois is a little bit all over the place. I think that's one of the things that makes the text so beautiful and, and rich and, and fun to read and something you can go back to again and again and get, get more meaning out of. But it's it might be a bit frustrating that he's not saying there's like, it's not a one, two, three, four program that the spiritual strivings lead to. They are spiritual after, after all. And they're trying to get at something that's a profound existential, to solve a profound existential crisis in in the black South in particular, but really black America as a whole. And then we get to chapter two of the dawn of freedom. The song that's included here is from my Lord. What a morning. 
which is, is a song I was not really aware of or familiar of familiar with. And again, we get right in the opening that it kind of opens much like chapter one in that it asks this question about, you know, black people being defined as a problem that has to be solved. And so he's a bit of two minds about reconstruction on the one hand. And we know this from the book he writes later that he does see this as a revolution in which black people really took a leadership role in that he doesn't quite have his full argument yet established when he wrote this essay. But this is an essay simply about reconstruction. Um, but it's a basically a, a reinterpretation that's more optimistic about what the Freedmen's Bureau did and what reconstruction meant for black people and kind of their their role in this this movement. But he also says that it, it kind of has the same original sin and that is the whole goal of things like the Freedmen's Bureau and the Republican Party in the South was, you know, how do we solve the problem with the Negro again? Quote, no sooner had northern armies touched southern soil than this old question, newly guys, sprang from the earth. What shall be done with the Negroes? Preemptory military commands this way and that could not answer the query. The Emancipation Proclamation seemed but to broaden and intensify the difficulties, and the war amendments made the Negro problems of today. So then, he goes on and he just describes actually the whole period from the war from 1861 until the early 1870s. So he covers about a decade or even a little bit more of, of the history of, of Reconstruction. And of course, Reconstruction happened in different timelines at different places, depending on, you know, when Union troops were there and who occupied it. So West Virginia had it first, the coastal regions that were occupied. The Mississippi Valley got a little bit earlier, Louisiana. And it's just a kind of a more of a straight up history of the period. But its thesis is essentially that the Freedmen's Bureau, although it may have had some problems and corruptions and, and difficulties and challenges, was essentially part of a liberatory effort for black people and something that they participated in. And it wasn't just something that was a gift granted to them from the north and i think that's where he he broke away from even other and there weren't that many as far as i know but other more optimistic readings of the freedmen's bureau now of course at the time he was writing this the major historiography was seeing reconstruction as a failure as a period of corruption and a period of of government excess and and governmental violence against the defeated enemy and he's one of the first here to really say it's much more than that, actually. And you get, you got to look at the black experience to understand what Reconstruction meant fully. That said, he, he's not fully on board with it because he still thinks it's, it's bogged up in this point of view of looking at black people as, as just a problem that has to be solved rather than actually trying to truly liberate them. And I don't even really quite want to say it that way because I don't think Du Bois would agree that I mean, that would just to talk about in those terms of, of liberating the black South still would have been this presumption that I think he's trying to avoid. He's he's actually very much interested in what black people wanted. And to the degree that the Freedmen's Bureau achieved that and helped with that, he praises it. So but he's also very frustrated that first it wasn't fully supported and it was aborted. And it didn't do land reform. So he does something we take for granted now when we study this period of history is that one of the great failures of Reconstruction was the failure of land reform and the, the fact that uh, the planters, the hold of the planter class was not fully broken by the war and by the governments that were established after the war. Um, and, but that was something clearly that black people were demanding and wanted, but it were, they were not able to get it from 
from the Freedmen's Bureau. So that that's chapter two. Um, it's, it might be the longest chapter in this book, actually. It's almost almost twenty pages. But oh, one more thing to say about this chapter is it's really about the failure of of an institution to achieve something as well meaning as it might be. Quote, the legacy of the Freedmen's Bureau is the heavy heritage of this generation. Today, when newer and new and vast, vaster problems are destined to strain every fiber of the national mind and soul, would it not be well to count this legacy honestly and carefully? For this much all men know, despite compromise, war, and struggle, the Negro is not free. In the backwoods of the Gulf states, for miles and miles, he may not leave the plantation of his birth. And well nigh the whole rural south, the black farmers are peons, bound by law and custom to an economic slavery from which the only escape is death in the penitentiary. In the most cultured sections and cities of the South, the Negroes are a segregated servile caste with restricted rights and privileges. Before the courts, both in law and custom, they stand on a different and peculiar basis. Taxation without representation is the rule of their political life. And the result of all of this, and in large, must have been lawlessness and crime. This is the large legacy of the Freedmen's Bureau, the work it did not do because it could not. End quote. And this is, of course, the story of so many institutions in our own world that just, you know, this is really the David Simon argument almost uh, about how our institutions fail to really account for the people they're supposed to address themselves to. And, you know, so he's very honest about it, even though he sees potential in, you know, in power. I mean, I think that's part of his argument, of course, is that black people need actual real political power. And, yeah, the vote itself is not the achievement. The, the It's what the vote accomplishes and, and and leads to right the the spiritual and material liberation that may come from the vote it's not that the vote itself is the end goal and i think this is one of the ways he thinks that the white south or the you know white america as a whole got the solution wrong certainly not the white south which probably knew better than the white north how important the vote was because they tried to suppress it eventually okay next in chapter three we have of booker mr booker t washington and others and so here he's really talking about black leadership and the importance of, of leadership with the right goals. And he says again and again, there's plenty that Booker T. Washington did that's good. And he's not opposed to vocational education for its own sake. He thinks that's, of course, a crucial part of, of breaking down the veil. But he just thinks uh, what Booker T. Washington did was so limiting. So if you don't know the story of this, um, I mean, it's a pretty commonly told one now, but, you know, Booker T. Washington gave this famous speech, which became known as the Atlanta Compromise, which essentially used as a slogan, drop your bucket where you're at, to both blacks and whites. To blacks, drop your bucket where you are, work with the world you have, you know, ex work with, you know, accept the power of whites in society, uh, build up your skills. You know, and then at the same time, whites should, in contrast, then not look to immigrants for jobs instead of hire blacks. And so there's actually a compromise that can be made um, between between these two parts of, of the American South to the benefit of both. Now, he does acknowledge, though, that the white South tended to look at this compromise as a surrender. And that's not what Booker T. Washington really meant. So I, I think... In a sense, Du Bois is fair enough to realize that Booker T. Washington never thought this is the end of the story. He just thought it was a foundation on which to to lay 
of black progress for the future. But nevertheless, whites took it to mean, oh, we can, so white supremacy is okay. But nevertheless, Du Bois still has a problem with the way Booker T. Washington framed the question, framed the problem, and, and conceived of solutions. Quote, Mr. Washington represents in Negro thought the old attitude of adjustment and submission, but adjustment at such a peculiar time as to make his program unique. This is an age of unusual economic development, and Mr. Washington's program naturally takes an economic cast, becoming a gospel of work and money, to such an extent as apparently almost completely to overshadow the higher aims of life. Moreover, this is an age in which more advanced races are coming in closer in contact with less developed races, and the race feeling is therefore intensified. And Mr. Washington's program practically accepts the alleged inferiority of the Negro races. Again, in our own land, the reaction from the sentiment of wartime has given impetus of, to race prejudice against Negroes. And Mr. Washington withdraws many of the high demands of Negroes as men and American citizens. End quote. So Du Bois then says that what Washington sets aside is essentially what we have to insist on now and fight for now and, and you know, struggle for. And that's political power, civil rights, and higher education. And he's got the evidence to, to show that Washington's approaches failed. By the time he had written this, so I guess the Atlanta Compromise speech was 1896, I think, maybe 1895. And this was written, you know, eight years later. This is published eight years later. So what happened in those eight years? Well, what you saw was the codification of, of Jim Crow. The Plessy versus Ferguson case, the expansion of, dis of disfranchisement laws throughout the South, one by one, Southern states worked to strip voting rights, not just from blacks, but from, from many poor whites as well. And then we saw the rise of the Jim Crow segregation system. We also saw less aid in higher education and other, you know, we basically run into the nadir of, race of American race relations. So there's something wrong with the strategy, just on the outcome and the results. As you know, it doesn't seem to to work. So Du Bois then says, what we really need to insist on is is the vote. And again, the vote is is a means to an end. I think it's not the end in itself, but civic equality, and then higher education. So the very things Washington is rejecting are what have to be insisted on right now. And I think the, the lack of patience is, is significant. And that makes a big, the big gap between Washington and Du Bois. And then I think another thing you get is a kind of, you get the feeling when you read Du Bois that it's something we, we have to earn our place in American life, right? It's something we have to work for. And we work through it through, you know, being useful to America. And Du Bois would counter right away with this to this line of thought that we have been useful. I mean, we were slaves for 300 years. Of course we were useful. We built this nation, right? We built the White House. It's it's not about our utility that's in question. It's our rights that are being, that's the question. It's our, it's our, it's our dignity and it's our ability to achieve our potential. So, you know, that this is the argument though between, between the two and it's well stated here, although you don't really get Washington's reply. I don't know if Washington ever directly replied to to Du Bois. And one thing that Du Bois likes to talk about here is, you know, he's one guy and eventually he does have the NAACP and the Niagara movement and the crisis. But, you know, Washington, 
he had this backing of like Andrew Carnegie and he had all, he was tied up with all these charity networks and philanthropists. And he was kind of, you know, saying a little bit of what they wanted to say in order to get this money. And I, that's part of the critique that Du Bois levels against Washington. And these chapters and some of the essays we'll look at in a, in a future episode. The next chapter of The Meaning of Progress, it opens with uh, some Schiller prose and then a song or some verse from by Schiller, I mean, and then a song, some notes from the song, My Way's Cloudy. Oh, by the way, though, chapter three, I think I didn't mention that that spiritual that opens that one is a great camp meeting in the promised land. Again, like I, I didn't know these. I, I mean, I read this book a couple of times and I never actually looked up these songs till till now. And some I could find on YouTube, some I couldn't. Uh, but mostly I haven't heard of them before. So it's like my bumper is one of one of these new ones I learned about. Okay, so what this chapter of the meaning of progress, chapter four, is is really about the his own experience is very autobiographical. It's about his experience teaching in a school in Alexandria, where he taught in 1886 and 1887, and then he follows some of the students he he taught, and he he really examines the poverty that these students faced, the struggles they faced, and he actually looks at a couple children directly. One is Josie. Um, he looks at another, uh, I think a, a boy too, but, um, anyways, Josie, I think is the one he refers to most. And she actually did, he talks about, you know, he went back and checked up on these and Josie had actually died. So there's, there's a bit of sorrow in that, in the story of, of him going back to, you know, to check on the, these kids he taught. And what you they get you sense is like, a, a bit of the the weakness of this approach of education, the way education was being approached in the South and how out of touch it was with the actual needs of, of the people in these communities. But despite that, you know, education was something new and it was a sign of progress for them. And it was something they actually embraced and took, took, took quite seriously and, and believed in. And I think Du Bois here is trying to make the point that this potential for higher education is more broadly than more broad in black America than was commonly accepted or understood by people like Booker T. Washington or most of most of the American whites. Quote, I have called my tiny community a world and so its isolation made it. And yet there was among us but a half awakened common consciousness sprung from common joy and grief at burial, birth and wedding from a common hardship in poverty, poor land and low wages. And above all, from the sight of the veil that hung between us and opportunity. All this caused us to think some thoughts together, but these, when ripe for speech, were spoken in various languages. Those whose eyes 25 or more years before had seen the glory of the coming of the Lord saw in every present hindrance or help a dark fatalism bound to bring all things right in him own good time. The master of those to whom slavery was a dim recollection of childhood found the world a puzzling thing. It asked little of them, and they answered with little, and yet it ridiculed their offering. Such a paradox they could not understand, and therefore sank into listless indifference or shiftlessness or reckless bravado. There were, however, some, such as Josie, Jim, and Bed, to whom war, hell, and slavery were but childhood tales, and whose young appetites had been whetted but to the edge of school and story and half-awakened thoughts. Ill could be content, born without and beyond the world, and their weak Wings beat against their barriers, barriers of caste, of youth, of life, at last in dangerous moments against everything that opposed even a whim. End quote. 
It's it's hard not to just keep reading Du Bois. I, it's such uh, it's so well written and so captivating. But anyways, you get the sense here that you know as great as education is and how much it did like as he puts a wet their appetite for you know greater understanding of the world. You know, as long as the veil existed, it it, never, it would always be a half project and it could never be really achieved. And he's, he shows some frustration here in that no matter how well, how brilliant these young people may prove to be or how curious, what they offer will not be accepted by America, by which we mean like white America. And therefore, this this just this, they're just expected to be servants. And and so education becomes a bit of a lie to them yet at the same time he's you know so i guess this the, the title of this chapter the meaning of progress is really about this like how do we actually measure progress do we measure it with a new school building do we measure it with a new curriculum or a bright college educated teacher who comes from the north like him like he was or is there another way we have to measure that and i think he certainly thinks there has to be a, a deeper way we measure the progress for the race and to make the point clear at the end of the chapter he just says you know these are the things he thought about as he rode the jim crow car home right so just another barrier to to equality chapter five is called on the wings of atalanta and here the spiritual referred to in the music is the rocks and the mountains so he uses the the story of the Greek myth of Atalanta as the as the the title of his of this chapter, and the metaphor here is is about progress, about racing forward to progress, right? Because um, I mean, you even see it there in the verse he begins this um, chapter with. It's a guy named Whittier. I don't know the poem, but poet. But he says, "Quote, old black boy Valanta." But half, but half was spoken. The slaves' chains and the masters alike were broken. The one curse of the race is held both in tether. They are rising, all are rising, the black and white together. All right. So this is the about progress and the limits of progress. And how, again, this kind of comes back to the theme of how do we measure progress and how do we, how do we see it? And he uses Atlanta, then, the city of Atlanta, compared, contrasted to the, the story of Atalanta as a metaphor for this sign of the overall progress of the south and then the question is what's black people's role in this this kind of the growth of the south the new south if you will so du bois here is really warning against a too material uh definition of of progress and that this itself can't be a solution to double consciousness Quote, Atlanta must not lead the South to dream of material prosperity as the touchstone of all success. Already the fate, fatal might of this idea is beginning to spread. It is replacing the finer type of Southerner with the vulgar money getters. It is burying the sweet, sweeter beauties of Southern life behind the pretense and ostentation. For every Southern ill, the panacea of wealth has been urged. Wealth to overthrow the remains of the slave feudalism. Wealth to raise the cracker. Third estate wealth to employ the black serfs and the prospect of wealth to keep them working. Wealth as an end in name of politics and as a legal tender for law and order. And finally, instead of truth, beauty, and goodness, wealth as an ideal of the public schools. And this is a very contemporary problem. And I, I think even if you set aside Du Bois's context of the rise of Jim Crow, that's, that's what's driving him to write this, 
this book, you, you know, there's a lot of themes here that I think are still really relevant to us. And, you know, we, we still by and large measure success in material wealth, right? We, we say, you know, a nation expands because its GDP grows or, or whatever. And he just presents here the limits of doing that. And then he talks about an alternative, and that is the rise of, of colleges. And he talks about Fisk and Howard as products of a different type of, of way to measure progress. But ultimately, he's warning against the foot race. And that's why the story of Atalanta, the story, I, I forgot most of the details of it, but it has to do with a foot race for gold, that this can't be the foundation for, for progress. Quote, they forgot too, just as the successors are forgetting the rule of inequality, that of the million black youths, some were fitted to know and some to dig, that some had the talent and capacity of university men and some had the talent and capacity of blacksmiths. And the true training meant neither that all should be college men or all artisans, but that one should be made a missionary of culture to an untaught people and the other a free workman among serfs. And to seek to make the blacksmith a scholar is almost as silly as the more moderate modern scheme of making the scholar a blacksmith. Almost, but not quite. End quote. Um, so that's kind of where he leaves it with On the Wings of Atalanta. And then chapter six of the training of black men feeds right into this theme of then what do we do with this talented tent? Now, he never uses the term talented tent as far as I can tell in, in The Souls of Black Folk. He talks about it in some of the other essays on the same theme. So he's certainly thinking, talking here about the talented tent, that group that is capable of achieving success in higher education. Uh, and here the spiritualists march on and we have a, a, some verse from um, Omar Khayyam. So this, as, as I said, is really about the higher education and its role and what can be done, what has been done. So he talks about some schools that were established after the Civil War and their successes. And, you know, he talks about the diversity of these different schools and how funding for them came about. So this one, you get a little bit more of a, of a historical account of the pursuit of higher education by black Americans in the years after the war. He even talks about Booker T. Washington, even though he does kind of come back to criticizing Booker T. Washington for those for his exclusive focus on vocational education. And he thinks the, the goal of higher education is, as he puts it, quote, to develop men. Right. It's any it, or the social regeneration of the Negro. He also puts it there that it's it, it's got to be something that can't be co-opted by some other purpose, whether it's kind of material progress or or industrialization or the goals of capital. It really has to be something autonomous. And that's what's essential to breaking free of double consciousness. And that will be really the, the historical burden and the historical duty of this class of, of educated people to, to shatter the, the veil, hopefully. And now the chapter itself is a little bit more historical and straightforward, but it has this beautiful conclusion, which is it's, it's actually one of the, the best, moments in the entire book i think quote i sit with shakespeare and he winces not across the color line i move arm in arm with balls i can do ma's where smiling men and welcoming women glide in gilded halls from out of the caves of evening that swing between the strong-limbed earth and the tracery of the stars i summon aristotle and aurelius and what soul i will and they come all graciously with no scorn or condescension so wed with truth i dwell above the veil is this the life you grudge us o knightly america is this the life you long to change at the 
dull red hideousness of Georgia? Are you so afraid lest peering from this high fishag between Philistine and Amalekite we sight the promised land? End quote. Um, so I guess that's six chapters. I guess that's enough for now. Um, I'll, I'll deal with the rest in the next episode. It's, it's not quite 100 pages, but I've already been going on for about 45 minutes. So I'll just I'll finish it up in the next episode, but I'm going to set it aside for now. So um, I guess I'll just hold off my final thoughts about The Souls of Black Folk until the end of the next episode. Obviously, I think it's a great book and I think it's worth reading. And I think it's a kind of the kind of book you can come back to again and again and learn new things from. And I think it's still very relevant. There's there's still it's still important to read from many different points of view. It's still very valuable to us. So anyways, that's my recommendation. But I'll come back and give the rest of my thoughts on the remaining, I guess, eight chapters of of the book in the next episode so but leave your comments below if if i missed anything important if you read this book i know that you you know you could talk about this book forever actually you could spend years rereading it and 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 finding new things about it so i know i'm going to miss a lot and i i gave short shrift to a lot of it but if if there's anything important that i left out and you want to talk with me about it please leave comments or send me an email at 100 pagescast at gmail.com but if not i'll be back next time with Uh, my thoughts on basically the second half of the souls of black folk so thanks for listening